Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. I don't understand how people live. It's amazing to me that people wake up every morning and say, yeah, another day, let's do it. How do people do it? The Great Impost has spoken! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man! I'm a very good man! Good man! They think deep thoughts, and with no more brains than you have. Just a very bad wizard. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, Whoopi Goldberg has been suspended for two weeks from ABC's The View for saying that the Holocaust was about race, wasn't no, about was. race. <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure which one is supposed to be bad. <laughs> which but. one's the right? Yeah, which one's <laughs> yeah. the good one? <laughs> but assuming we can figure that out, do you think her suspension should have been longer? <laughs> yes, if only to give her more time to to uh, be a guest on the Picard Star Trek revamp that she's going to be a part of. So I feel like it maybe it was just a long play to get like some leave, some shore <laughs> time to be in what really matters. <laughs> just say something about the Holocaust. You're bound to get suspended for like two to four weeks. Yeah. yeah. Joy Behar is the only one who can say anything about the Holocaust. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so here's what we're going to do today. In the second segment, we're going to talk about Lars von Trier's director I don't know that well, um, Melancholia, which is about depression and severe depression. And then along the way, we'll talk about uh, an article that you suggested by Sigmund Freud called Morning and Melancholia. So yeah. that should be fun. That should be fun, which I, I suspect... Uh, played a role in Lars von Trier's movie. But in the first segment, we're sort of clearing out of the opening segment box, trying to talk about a bunch of stuff that's come across our radar, um, PTI style. We have a list. It's like a to-do list. Yeah. To, we got to scratch them all off. Clear the Slack channel. PTI, for those who don't know, is pardon the interruption, something we mentioned like back in episode six or something that we were going to steal the conceit. Yeah. Um, and, and so I'm going to actually do a timer like they do. So you got the timer going? Timer starting. So Whoopi Goldberg, okay, yes, was, she says it wasn't about race, which <laughs> right. I got, I received a lot of pushback from people like uh, Jonathan Greenblatt of the Anti-Defamation League, not my favorite organization, no Whoopi Goldberg, <laughs> the Holocaust was about the Nazis' systematic annihilation of the Jewish people who they deemed to be an inferior race. They dehumanized them and used this racist propaganda to justify slaughtering six million Jews. Holocaust distortion is dangerous. I mean, she wasn't denying that they were <laughs> targeting the, the Jewish people. The Jews. People. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You can select on things without it being about race. And, and uh, for instance, their targeting of disabled people or, or gay people. Gypsies. Um, Right or no, we don't say that anymore. Do we, we not? To, no. Uh, the, <laughs> two <laughs> the weeks. 
<laughs> Paul Bloom guest hosting next episode of Very Bad Wizard. Um, um, right. So, so it's not like she's denying the Holocaust. And, and she said, I think what she said right afterwards, this was about man's inhumanity against man. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of what you were referring to in the opening question is that the question as to whether Jews are a race is one that seems to have a different answer depending on the sort of context in which the question is asked, right? But nobody's denying that white, most Jews are white people. And so if that's, if you're coming with the framework of that as race. Yeah, like skin color. Yeah, but then there's also an old timey version of race where like the Germans were a race for for Hitler. And obviously that's not like the way we use race now. So You could have a reasonable discussion, I think, and and have reasonable positions on both sides. Certainly they used racial rhetoric when they were talking about the Jews and exterminating the Jews. But here, my my issue with this is I don't believe anybody is truly offended by this. This is... (laughs) Especially since her name is Goldberg. So, so, you know, she clearly (laughs) has a love for the Jews. She she made up a Jewish name. (laughs) Well, the the last uh, thing that, that Jonathan Greenblatt got mad at her for for was she had a charity cookbook containing a Jewish American princess fried chicken. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, these people are just professional. You can have fried chicken, but you can't have a Jewish American. <laughs> right, exactly. The fried chicken is part of it is fine for like black people, but can't say jab. It, it's like the, the, these people are paid to just get offended and to cry anti-Semitism for like the, the slightest possible provocation. It's like it's it I like all culture war stuff is bullshit, as we'll see. Like, but this one, I really don't like this one because I don't buy that anyone really believes it. I don't buy that anyone was really hurt by what Whoopi said, Whoopi Goldberg said. Kim Godwin, president of ABC News, said, uh, I've asked her to take time to reflect and learn about the impact of her comments. There's no <laughs> so fucking... Gonna, it, the entire... do for two weeks. <laughs> the entire ABC News news organization stands in solidarity with our Jewish colleagues, friends, families, and communities. It's just like, don't, it's, it's all like such transparent bullshit. Like, I can't even believe these people can live with themselves. Do I, do I get last word? Yes. Um, <laughs> so I think there's one way in which there might be a complaint, but it's really, really reading into uh, to what you're saying. And that might be that if what you took her to be saying is that the colorism associated with anti-black prejudice is like somehow worse or better or whatever that she wants to claim. Like, if that's what she was saying, then maybe. I guess, yes. Yeah. But, like, the, you really have to read it in the most uncharitable yes, way possible. Absolutely. People yeah. aren't doing that because they truly, I mean, you know, maybe there's, a, like, a, a scattered few who are truly yeah. upset by it. But I, 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 it's hard for me to get in the head of that person as a Jew, it's, as a person who lost family in, in the Holocaust. And like, I'm not going to question your lived experience. So if you say okay. it, uh, next segment we're going to talk about what the term last word means. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Let my people get the last word. We are silenced by. <laughs> She's. How can you be mad at Whoopi Goldberg? Seriously, like of all of your wrath, what energy are you bringing to the world? If what you care is that Whoopi Goldberg said some something on the view yeah. that you didn't quite agree. <laughs> exactly. What energy are you bringing to the world? It's such a good way of putting it. <laughs>
Uh, all right, let's turn to an even dumber controversy, if that's <laughs> These possible. Are a lot. Yeah, we got to get culture war stuff out of the way. The M&M's characters, the Mars Corporation, decided to give them the characters, our beloved M&M characters, a modern makeover for a more dynamic, progressive world. Yeah, so this includes uh, redesigning the characters so that some of them, like the one that was wearing go-go boots, now wearing sneakers. Yeah, the green M&M. Cool laid back sneakers to reflect her effortless confidence. <laughs> the green M&M will also be better represented to reflect uh, confidence and empowerment as a strong female and known for much more than her boots because obviously every time <laughs> you think of the green M&M. Yeah, I'm like, it's just her boots. And now the brown M&Ms, her heels got shortened to a more professional heel height. Yeah. And, uh, and the orange M&M. <laughs> this who, is one of my favorites. <laughs> as an anxious personality will, quote, embrace his true self, <laughs> worries and all. But the orange M&M's shoelaces will now be tied to represent his cautious nature. According to Mars, the orange M&M is one of the most relatable characters with Gen Z, which is the most anxious generation. This is like that branding <laughs> bullshit. Like they, pay, they got paid like a million dollars to come up with the documents about this. Oh, thing. I'm sure. At least. Yeah. At least, yeah, yeah. This is like that University of Oregon branding thing. Just like you can't even believe it's real. Like I genuinely can't even believe. It. Like I, it's it's what does it say that this is not just a trolley fake document? Who has thought about the M and M's in any way? Like that they were representing anybody other than just a fucking handful of chocolate candies? Like this is the question: Is do they even believe? this at any level or like there's a couple of alternate possibilities that are more plausible to me number <laughs> one that this is just free advertising this is a new yeah. way to to get people to think about m&ms and then when they go to the store like oh yeah i haven't gotten m&ms in a while because they've read all these articles about the m&ms and and you know <laughs> generating all this culture war like people making fun of it or being angry about it or celebrating it if if that person exists uh, so maybe it's just a like a, a new way to get advertise they must have read all that shit about outrage getting shared more um you know here's the one that really perplexes me mars will also include imagery of m&ms of all shapes and sizes moving away from only one body size and it will remove the prefixes from the characters names in order to focus on their personalities rather than their gender <laughs> but I mean, they're all the same size <laughs> i'm like what the fuck? Like, did like, uh, am I to be offended that my whatever you know and ectomorphic body is not represented <laughs> in the Eminem lineup? <laughs> my non-spherical body. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> spheres, spheres get all the attention. The green Eminem and the brown Eminem will have a more friendly relationship, showcasing a force supporting women. They will be throwing shine, not shade, because they've been at odds. That is and so cringy. It is. It's one of the cringiest things I've ever read. Perhaps until the next thing. So did you hear that? Meanwhile, at at the time that all this was going on, Mars Company was sued for child slavery. No, I did not. Yes, oh. like Mars and Nestle. So that's the other thing. And you know, oh. I, like the real conspiratorial side of me thinks this is also maybe true about like the Whoopi Goldberg thing. Right when the amnesty 
International comes out with this like damning report about Israel and and up comparing it with apartheid, like you know that everybody's talking about Whoopi Goldberg, and then this like the child slavery lawsuit. But now everyone's like worked up about so like. You but I don't wh- think I think the first explanation is more. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say you think Whoopi took payola to like say some shit about Jews. <laughs> the Jewish, <laughs> it's a, it's a problematic analogy because <laughs> Jews are not a corporate <laughs> not a corporation. <laughs> I totally, I don't even think you have to, it's not even a conspiracy. I didn't know that. I put money on that. They, if if they didn't redesign it for that reason, they released it at the time for that reason. Oh, the next one is, what do we have? Brainwaves. Oh, brainwaves. We could have devoted a whole opening segment to this, but it is so stupid. So this made all, like all these headlines was this new PNAS, Proceedings for the National Academy of Sciences, uh, article Presenting data on that a randomized trial where they give uh, poor mothers money. They just gift them money. Some, like a significant amount, the other half, like a small, trivial amount, to see how that might affect basically this randomized trial about poverty. They showed that in this paper, they claim to show that the mothers who got more money the in the non-poverty condition, their baby's brain waves changed. And that's it, I guess. <laughs> that's... They didn't they didn't assess their cognitive functioning in any other way. They strapped them to EEGs. They ran a whole bunch of analyses and they said like we have proof that that uh this trial is working because there's like fewer theta waves in the baby's brains than delta and gamma and alpha waves. So there's a lot of problems just right statistically with the yeah. how they interpreted the results. There's also the sort of minor issue of <laughs> why we should care about brainwaves or what does that possibly correlate with or lead to and why wouldn't you just measure that if there's something better for the (laughs) babies that happens if the parents have more money then it seems like that's the thing we should care about rather than their brainwaves i read the paper for this and i'm annoyed because i actually read not all of the there's like a longer version but it's usually in the format where they give the intro the main results in the discussion i read all that they don't even really bother to try to tie those brain waves they like cite one thing that's just like bullshit and just leave it to us to assume that it must be the case that these brain waves are associated with with uh good shit like (laughs) like it's it's ridiculous it's there's there are so many problems with it, but the the main problem is that it's not even a finding, as you say. They ran like a hundred analyses, and they just reported the significant ones. That's and that's not a finding. That's just that's what we call p hacking. <laughs> yeah, but I do think like that's it's a real problem that that we are turning to these kinds of things. People were talking about this like this is why we need to have like the child tax credit is because of a study like this. This is huge for that. It's such a bizarre <laughs> backwards and like I think like indicative of like the sickness of how we view poverty that that this is the way that you would rhetorically try to convince people. Yeah, it's terrible, and it's just leveraging that. Like, what I thought, I thought that years of being on the air, you and I had disabused the public of thinking that this kind of data mattered. <laughs> Apparently, we, we, still, we have not had that. <laughs> we still have work to do. Alec, Alexander Lazani, one of our listeners, had a good tweet about this. He said, um, for centuries, policymakers have wondered how we could increase the gamma waves of poor babies. Thanks to EEG, we no longer have to rely on silly proxies such as the baby's overall health, their vocabulary <laughs> development, subjective stress levels, etc. 
think that says it, it would pretty be a, well. yeah it would be a more informative study if they had just like measured taken pictures of what kind of clothes they have yeah, at least that's a meaningful like they have better right. clothes after they got money <laughs> I think a real concern is how this got into such a prestigious journal. And that's what like Stuart Ritchie had a tweet storm about this, basically ending with like, who is reviewing this? Like it's basically like an invited submission mm -hmm. and it's just getting fast passed through in, because it's sexy, but it's not even sexy. Hey, don't knock invited submissions. That's like the only <laughs> way we publish. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. All right. Is this uh, the last one? Well, Rogan is the next oh, one. Yeah. We had another one with the Jedi, but maybe we'll save that. It's a, that one made me so mad that Rogan is a calm space for me right now. So this one I'm confused a little bit by. Like, I don't totally get why people all of a sudden are worked up about Joe Rogan on Spotify. And like, it's not clear to me exactly what he did. <laughs> that people are, like all of a sudden want to like either deplatform him or just like put up warnings or something. Yeah, so you could see this coming a mile away when Spotify, when Spotify paid him all that money to put him exclusively on Spotify. They're all of a sudden taking the responsibility for this. Um, not really, but in some way, right? Because if you're on Apple, if you're like us and you're on every platform, nobody has any responsibility for it. Right. Rogan. You, I'm not even mad at Rogan. I, like, of course, I think that he has stupid people on, and in this case, people who are actively pushing, I think, wrong, like the bad information. But I honestly, I can't get behind the outrage. So whatever, 250 whatever people signed this thing saying like Joe Rogan is, you know, the reason why Omicron is killing people or something, and and putting pressure on Spotify. And to Spotify's credit, they're like. Sorry, too bad. Like, not. but what exactly? Because it's because he had these two so-called experts go on his show for three hours and push information that clearly, like, was. But what? What? Uh, That's the thing. Um, that alternative treatments work better than they do. That vaccines are not gonna problem at all. Like that. That basically discouraging people from getting vaccinated. One of them claims to have been one of the key inventors behind the mRNA vaccine and then says, like, you know, trust me, like, I don't think you should be injecting this. Like, hmm. it's dumb. You know, Rogan had this video on Instagram where he he said, and I completely believe him, but I don't know, like, I just have these people on. I do a three-hour podcast. I don't prepare for this shit. Like, uh, you know, maybe I should have more people on who disagree, but like, you know, I'll try to do better. But I didn't think I was going to get this influential. <laughs> like, he just yeah. said that. Yeah. He's like, I'm a dumbass, right? And, but I think people get that. Like, they're talking about him like he's the fucking Pied Piper. Like, in one sense, he has a lot of people that just love listening to the podcast, but that's not something you need to pull down or, or you just need to assume that, like, if somebody goes on his podcast, all these millions of, like, 24-year-old men are going to not be able to think for themselves uh, and weigh evidence. I, it's it's kind of fucked up that people are thinking of it this way. Like, well, so, but there are plenty of like 24 to 34 year old men who do believe all of the experts he brings on and who are doing harmful things because Joe Rogan said, but I, but, but yeah. I don't, I mean, like, I still. That's life. Yeah, I don't understand what's to be done here. The minute you start asking people to take down something like wrote you know whatever we could debate forever about alex jones and whether he should be deplatformed by apple but rogan isn't that no like 
You know? Not even close. And, and and so it's like, I don't know, they're 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 but for the grace of that's like it's like people who complained about Stern back in the day. They wanted to get Stern off the radio because they right. didn't like that people were whatever. And it's yeah. I'm not somebody who gets worried, obviously, about cancel culture. And and obviously, Rogan's not getting taken down, and he's probably just getting right. more free publicity. But this is the kind of stuff that makes me take it, you know, the, the concerns about it a little more seriously. Yeah, once they came for Rogan, then Tamla changed it. <laughs> no, it's, it's not like I've never listened to like a whole Rogan. Evergreen. Pod- Evergreen. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I yeah, I've listened to plenty of Rogan. He's a he can be a dumbass, but there's something about the guy that doesn't bother me. And I, there are people yeah. in my life who hate him, but he doesn't bother me. And I think he's inquisitive, and he's you know, yeah, I, that one honestly is just weird to me. Like I don't fully get why. Like he he's always had people. I think that people don't like him because he reminds them of like these bro kind of guys that they hate. You yeah. know what I mean? Like it's, these like well actually guys these. I mean, he does have a ton of idiot con- conspiracy loons on his show. It's not like he's bringing, but he does. He the thing is, he brings everybody on his show. Yeah, you know. Did you see the clips of Jordan Peterson on Rogan? <laughs> I mean, I, I just saw that like his pictures of himself. Oh my Jordan god! Peterson. Just the first two minutes. That's all you need to watch. Like those two. Like that's the thing. Is those two together? Like they have the same. I are directed at both of them. Like they remind people of the kind of person they they hate, and they're so successful doing it. But, yeah, but I'll put I'll, like uh, Peterson. He is the the person I hate. Like he's not just the kind of person I hate. Like he's really just gotten terrible. But he's um, crazy. Oh yeah, he's crazy. I mean, hate's a strong word. But yeah. but he's not. It's not like family resemblance to crazy people. It's just actual right. crazy. Rogan is like, you know, Rogan at his best, I watch. Like, I like it, you know? Yeah. I didn't know you were a big I'm not a big row bro. I'm, <laughs> I, dude, whenever I watch it, Nikki gets so frustrated at seeing me watch it. Yeah, I will say this. I, I uh, respect Neil Young and Joni Mitchell for actually putting their money where their mouth is and saying, well, I, Rogan's on Spotify. I don't like it, so I'm going to pull my music. It's much, To me, that's a much better response than yeah. signing a letter and sending it publicly saying, like, we think you should put a warning. You know? And Neil bitching Young, about it. Yeah. yeah. He, did, he, know, he knew that Spotify wasn't going to be like, oh, shit, Neil Young. I'm surprised. Like, a lot of these old rockers are, like, anti-vaxxers. You know, yeah, like, know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Van Morrison, total anti-vaxxer. Um, Eric Clapton. Eric oh, Clapton. Eric Clapton. <laughs> like, he's got a very uh, problematic. Like, Seriously, he, you're going after yeah. Whoopi Goldberg and Eric Clapton has just been having a career for the last... <laughs> <laughs> Some of the shit that he said like in the 70s and 80s, oh, he's like, you can't even believe it. No, no, I know. I mean, people don't really know that about him. Somehow he's managed to escape this, like, you know. Just openly racist, <laughs> anti-immigrant. Like, we yeah, should get out of England. Like, get out of England. Eric Clapton's greatest hits. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All, All right. right. We're going to have to save the Jedi for some other time. Yeah. All right. Uh, we'll be right back to talk about melancholia. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Check out betterhelp.com slash VBW. Tamler, I was talking to a mutual friend of ours who shall remain unnamed, and he was telling me about his therapy sessions. And one of the things that he valued was 
just getting an objective point of view just from a third party perspective, somebody who is able to reason. You you were telling me you were in a situation where you might have a third party point of view might help you out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I went through something when we were recording that uh, I was like, am I the fucking, it's like the am I the <laughs> asshole, <laughs> you know, like, uh, and I, you know, I can't figure it out and uh, it would be nice to have a, a third party just tell me, yes, you are the asshole or no, they're the fucking ad. Okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, BetterHelp, you might want to check it out. BetterHelp is customized online therapy. It offers video phone and live chat sessions with your therapist. You don't have to do video. You don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be up and running talking to a licensed professional therapist in under 48 hours. So if you want to unload some of those stressors in your life, get some unbiased feedback about whether you're the asshole or not. Um, try better help and you just might be surprised at what you might gain for it, from it. Um, it's not like you're committed to it forever, right. um, but it really might help you in ways that you have no idea that it could help. That's right. So give it a try and see if it's for you. Once again, this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Very Bad Wizards listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash VBW. Again, that's B-E-T-T-E-R. H-E-L-P.com slash VBW. Our thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. back to very bad wizards this is the time where we like to take a moment and thank all the people for interacting with us and all the different ways that that you do uh, you can email us very bad wizards at gmail.com uh, you uh, and we read all the emails and we feed off of them that's right <laughs> you can tweet to us at peas at Tamler or at Very Bad Wizards. You can follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook. You can um, join the subreddit, the Very Bad Wizards subreddit, the lively subreddit where we sometimes pop on there ourselves. I've been doing that a little less lately, but it seems yeah. like there's some interesting stuff going on there. Um, and uh, you can always give us a review on Apple Podcasts. That always helps. Five-star review on Apple Podcasts is a big thing to spread the word. And you can subscribe to us on Spotify. That's Speaking right. of Spotify, um, we recorded that opening segment on Rogan back when the controversy was still um, regarding his stuff on COVID for the most part. Right. Um, and oh, so long ago. Oh, so long ago. <laughs> three news cycles ago, like three days ago. 
you know, now, uh, we, and we have, neither of us have really looked into this much, but there was, as I understand it, a, a leaked memo where the Spotify CEO sent uh, something to employees reaffirming their decision to keep Rogan on Spotify, but also saying, you know, they're sorry if people are, are hurt or offended by it. And also that Spotify had removed at Joe Rogan's request request, according to this memo, um, a bunch of episodes from a while back. And, and, and people knew about these episodes before where he had used the N-word in various contexts, which I don't know, and the joke and, and, and jokes um, and a couple other like, you know, referring to a, a, a black neighborhood as it's like Planet of the Apes down there, just kind of ugly stuff like that. But in context, I, I, I have no idea. In any case, Rogan kind of apologized for that too, kind of not. But they they took those down. I don't know. I uh, just take a second and say, does would does that change your view about you know based on what we said in our very brief and also uninformed discussion about him? <laughs> not for me and and weirdly maybe i'm just too much of an optimist about this (laughs) i believe that that rogan uh put it this way i believe that rogan really did feel like he had egg on his face with his use or mention of the n-word before i believe that they were probably all in the context that people used to mention the n-word in in conversation risky conversation and i uh agree with his decision to take him down and i think that he 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 was embarrassed by them and he probably should have taken him down a long time ago i don't think that spotify ever considered censoring him or censuring him because of those things it was the covid stuff really and i you know i i want i agree i don't i think it's dangerous to start taking shit down um yeah yeah. i do too i do too and i don't even know about like what he's taken down so i won't weigh in on whether that was a good good thing for him to take them down or not or for spotify to pressure them if they did him to take it down um I, I, I think, you know, I, I wish people were more focused on the important things and not this kind of stuff, you know. Like like what? Like actually <laughs> like actually addressing <laughs> like structural issues and Yeah. Address, I mean you know, and it, like you said, I don't know, you know, Joe Rogan might be a racist. I don't know. Yeah. Uh but I, I I don't. I don't think that changes my view of whether Spotify, what yeah. Spotify should do about it. Um, and he might yeah. be. He might be inclined towards wild conspiracy theories. He might. You know. He might be tempted towards various uh, anti. You know. Whatever. Like that's that's the the price of living in a free society is that you have to like people are going to get exposed to this stuff. I don't think you should yeah. start now, focusing right. your energies, your political energies, on stuff like this. Yeah. Now the question is, is I, I think our listeners w- might ask is, are we being inconsistent at all in our defense of Rogan and, and our, I don't think we've ever advocated for takedowns. No. Right. So I don't think so. So, you know, it's been really our position has been more that free speech isn't a, as much a threat in academia as people think it is. Not it's that, not under threat. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, totally. I mean, like, and I think when it has been, we have stood up for it in most cases when, you know, it was appropriate to stand up for it, at least as we see it. Yeah. As we see it. And, and really, the, the, biggest, the biggest free speech story is that University of Florida story, really. Like, do you know this story? Oh, of the professors not being allowed to yeah. testify? Yeah. That's like a blatant violation. no there's a there's a handful right now of legitimate free speech stories where um i think the the people who are concerned the fires of the world you know are concerned about academic freedom and stuff like that it is you know you have to keep reminding yourself that it's a huge enormous country where, and there's so many instances, there's thousands and thousands of instances every day where one of these could flare up and they don't. But, you know, that doesn't mean that the ones where it does are uh, unimportant or you shouldn't support them. And, yeah. and it doesn't mean that there aren't true dilemmas and conversations yeah. to be had about whether or not somebody should be you yeah. know, yanked of their whatever YouTube channel and all that. It's, it's burdensome to have a society where we value free speech. It really is. It's not. Yep. Um, and it's unfortunate, I think, that some people really do focus more on this stuff because it seems more doable. Like, oh, my God, look, uh, we got Rogan to take down all these episodes from like seven years ago that nobody was listening to anyway. <laughs> like, yeah. that's a victory for social justice. But it's really not. It's just not like at least in my view. That's not how this changes. No, and that's why I respect, you know, India Ari is this is a singer-songwriter who's black who she posted this supercut of of Rogan using the N-word and she pulled her music from Spotify. And again, you know, if what you're trying to do is tell a company that you don't like what they're doing, pulling your music and being the one to put your money where your mouth is is the way to do it. Like I have nothing but respect for artists who say, "Eh, I don't like Spotify." Um, I just want to make sure that there's uh, that that's their decision, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know? Exactly. Yeah, totally agree. And um, all right, well then, I thought when you were going to say what our listeners might be wondering is how they can support us. <laughs> that was really what they've been waiting for <laughs> with bated <laughs> breath. Like, yeah. when are they going to get to the tears? <laughs> are they going to get to <laughs> how we can give them money? Yes, if you want to support free speech in a more tangible way, uh, you can support us. Uh, there are a number of ways of supporting us. You can go to our support page on verybadwizards.com and see all the ways. You can give us a one-time donation on PayPal or a recurring donation. We really appreciate those. Um, mm-hmm. You can uh, buy some swag. You can get some t-shirts, some mugs, some hoodies. Um it's it's all there on the support page. Actually, those are on the merch pages. And you can become one of our beloved Patreon subscribers. Um, and we have a number of tiers. At $1 and up, you get ad-free episodes every episode. No ads. You get my beats, of which, by the way, I think I'm ready for another, another beat nice. compilation soon. Yeah. And uh, $2 and up, you get that and uh, all our bonus segments, including now. 
our Ask Us Anything segments that we started as a video uh, segment for the $10 and up subscribers. But what we're doing is after a month, we're going to release the audio for everybody at the $2 and up tiers. So Not the videos, but the audio. Not yeah. the videos. Nobody wants to see us anyway. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, at $5 and up, you get to be one of the people who votes on an episode topic. Oh, do we yeah. have a winner? We do. Oh, this yeah. Announce it. All right, let me, like, unless something has changed. Unless something's changed. Oh, no. So it was really, uh, I don't know, somewhere between a two and four uh, topic race. Uh, Sandman and Strange Loop never really had a chance. Common consent argument for the existence of nature spirits did much better than I thought it would. I didn't even put it on the Twitter poll that I, I uh, or maybe I did. I don't remember. I think that um, one was one, but... Uh, yeah. uh, uh, but really, it was... But, and then Active Killing also had a few. That came in fourth. Um, but it was really between Disco Elysium and Panpsychism. And Panpsychism squeaked out a victory 49 to 45. So we are... <laughs> obligated by law and morality to do an episode on panpsychism, which I'm actually kind of excited about. Like, I mean, I I don't know. I haven't really dived into that. Uh, yeah. I haven't really dug into it. Uh, Neither and, have I. It's, a, gr- it's, a, it'll, it's yeah. a great opportunity to read about something that I've kind of wanted to read about before, but never really had a reason to. And I want to talk to, like, um, I mean, I'll try to contact Galen Strawson and ask him you know what he recommends we can even possibly think about having him on we'll have to talk about that but anyway yeah that's it like that's uh that's the winner so thanks to all the the people who just gave a bunch of suggestions disco elysium we're gonna end up doing we both bought it we both bought it i've I've started it although i started already too um so (laughs) we'll definitely do that i'm sure i'd like to do the common consent argument that seems pretty interesting to me so i'll try to convince yeah. you of that and the act of killing is something that i've always wanted to do yeah. so yeah as well as we're, the we're gonna, yeah we're gonna call from these lists for a while so yeah and thanks uh, to so everybody for their suggestions yeah uh, absolutely um okay and if you're five dollars and up you also get uh tamler's lectures on plato symposium yeah uh, and maybe a couple others you know and maybe a couple others maybe. coming and my intro psych lectures um that will be up for another six months. We'll add one every month. And finally, at the $10 and up, you get the aforementioned video version of the Ask Us Anything, where you get to ask us a question. And I have to say, so far, we have answered every single question that has been asked of us. So, yes. Um, and I found myself looking forward to those. Like, I, I do, too. Yeah. yeah. In fact, I got to po- uh, right after we finish recording, I'm going to post the next call for questions. Oh, so. good. Awesome. Yeah. So, yeah, thank you to everybody for all your support. We really, really appreciate it. Um, and, yeah, also tell a friend. Tell a friend. Yeah. yeah. All right, let's turn to the end of the world. All right, let's talk about Depression, Melancholia, a movie written and directed by Lars von Trier, and then Freud's. Uh, Morning and Melancholia as well. Melancholia opens with an eight-minute poetic prologue set to Wagner's Tristan and Isolde with these 
really gorgeous apocalyptic images, these kind of Kubrick-like space shots and a lot of slow motion images of our main characters, some of which, some of these images we'll see uh, later in the movie. They're like scenes that we'll see throughout the film. Um, but then there's also these dreamlike supernatural elements. Birds are falling from the sky um, behind Justine, played by Kirsten Dunst. She's trying to walk in a wedding dress, but being held held back, kind of stopped. And she refers to this later by this like web-like thing. This it's like a like a giant spider web that's weighing her down. And then she's floating in a pond like Ophelia. And then there's also these like pieces of art that are put in. Uh, uh, Bruegel's Hunters in the Snow. The prologue culminates with the Earth's destruction after it collides with this other planet. So then after that, the movie divides into two parts. The first part, Justine, is the story of Justine, played by the just absolutely remarkable Kirsten Dunst. Uh, her wedding to Michael at her sister's, Claire's husband's, some sort of rural estate that's also on a golf course. And basically, the, it's, the first part is the wedding ceremony from hell, as Justine, during the wedding, is sliding deeper and deeper into just a depressed haze. And she's abandoned by her amiable but drunk and worthless dad her mom there's definitely no help there she's got this horrible boss and his like weasley nephew not leaving her alone um i have something to say about the nephew but i'll say that and the wedding just won't end and it's just like you feel the weight of just the misery that kirsten dunst is feeling um throughout it and she engages in a couple of self-destructive acts and finally michael leaves and the wedding comes to an end and then there's part two which is entitled claire claire is justine's sister that begins with Justine, I guess, coming back from what I take it. It's never fully made clear, but some sort of psychiatric hospital um, that she presumably spent some time after a depressive episode after the, the wedding. So she's in a kind of a stupor at the beginning of this. And meanwhile, Claire is getting more and more anxious about this planet called Melancholia that's hurtling towards Earth. And she's worried about, you know, what that what might happen, but uh, Claire's husband, John, played by Kiefer Sutherland in a performance that I've appreciated more and more the more I've seen this movie. He tells Claire to trust the science. It's just a flyby, he says. Trust the science. He says, like you. But as it turns out, it isn't just a flyby. The planet fly does kind of pass by Earth, but then it, in some uh, orbit I don't fully understand, comes back, I guess, and collides with Earth. John has already killed himself by then. Claire loses it, and Justine is eerily calm about the whole thing and also is the only one to really think of Leo, her nephew, and what he might need, and she builds a magic cave. And her and Leo and Claire all hold hands in this magic cave, which is just some uh, branches all put together, when the planet hits. And the Earth is destroyed. <laughs> so... It's kind of kind of bleak. Uh, not necessarily the kind of movie I like in general, but for some reason this movie captivated me. I loved it even more rewatching it. And I think it's the most vivid and kind of visceral portrayal of depression that I've ever seen. Uh, yeah, what did you think about it? I liked the movie. Um, you did add some superlatives that I don't think I'd share. I only saw it once. But I want to hedge what I'm about to say because I don't have a, a negative reaction to the movie as art. I didn't enjoy it that much. So, but I think that is explained by 
discomfort and anxiety and the yeah the the depression i think i would enjoy it uh, on a second viewing i do think that it's <clears throat> there's a lot to talk about and it's it, it's worth worth watching and maybe this is lars von trier's thing like i don't we talked about this i don't think i've watched a lars von trier movie i just know you know i know him by reputation as sort of a, a gloomy dane um <laughs> but who suffered from severe depression himself. It makes sense, yeah. You have to, I feel like you have to know it to, to depict it that way. Um, I think the performances, you know, were, were great. I think um, Kirsten Dunst is utterly unlikable in a way that I think depression really pulls people into. Depictions of depression as feeling sorry for the person who is depressed are more common. Um, I think this is a more realistic uh, show. Uh, depiction of it but the movie is also just gorgeous it's yes. a beautiful movie and those shots those opening shots that you were talking about the final shot like the oh know, my the, opening, God. the space odyssey shots sort of in the in the beginning really an homage i think the planetary shots are, are an homage to space odyssey yeah. and that final shot you, you know it's so easy i think to fall into the trap of of these tropes about the end of the world and showing destruction and and chaos and people, uh, you know, going crazy. Uh, and this just shows in a real, I got to say, a real anxiety-inducing kind of calm to the end of the world. Um, yeah. Well, from Justine, not from Claire, right? No, it's, it's well, Claire is, Claire's anxiety is turned up to 11. So yeah. really that second, portion of the film is showing anxiety and depression, I think, kind of, you know, coexisting in a very uncomfortable way. Claire's anxiety, played, by the way, by Charlotte Gainsbourg, the daughter, yeah, great, daughter of Jane Birkin and French mega pop star from the 60s, Serge Gainsbourg. Um, <laughs> um, Someone's been on Wikipedia. It, I just have, I've sampled Serge Gainsbourg and Jane Birkin. Oh, so really? I, that's why I do, yeah, oh, that's why cool. I do them. Um, and uh, but I did not know until until looking it up that that's who she, who that was. That anxiety she does a good job of portraying that anxiety and combined with the depression. You know, anxiety is trying to fix things. Yeah. And the depression is being dejected and not wanting to do anything. So the frustration in the dynamic between the two was, as you say, visceral, like in a yeah. way. Because they want to help each other, but yeah. they're both also not uh, a helpful compliment to what their the other is feeling. And so there's a kind of tragedy to that because I do yeah. feel like, uh, although there are some moments where they're pretty mean to each other, that they love each other and that they would like to, if they could help, help them. But, um, they, they're not equipped to do it. Like they clearly don't have the tools and they are, I think in the moment they're experiencing whatever, you know, emotions or, or mental illness that it's just is so incompatible with the other ones, you know. Uh, th one of the things I really liked throughout the whole movie is that everybody is trying to get Kirsten Dunst, who, as you say, is falling into a deeper and deeper depression, such that in the second half of the movie she can barely walk. For the first part of the second half, yeah. For the first part of the second half, she's she's like looks like she's physically disabled but she's really just in such a severe depression that that they're having to like manually assist her to move around everybody's doing that stupid thing that people still would do if that was your family member you just saying like can't you just be happy 
Yeah. And it's like, wh- how could you even think that? But I get it. Like, I get why you would get to the frustrated point where you'd be like, I did all of this stuff for you and you can't fucking be happy. Yeah. One of my favorite things about this performance. And if I didn't love Kirsten Dunst before, which <laughs> and I you did, did. <laughs> I, I, I just like, she's my favorite American actress, but the, the way she, when she is trying to put up a good front, you know, yeah. a happy front is at times almost convincing. You know, and so you can see that people might think, look, like, you know how to do this. You can be happy, but you see like how strained it gets. Like when she's in the wedding and she's listening to her like doofus husband make a toast (laughs) or, or, you know, like listening to her parents and and their very funny, like just completely inappropriate speeches. And then the boss trying to get a tagline out of her, like you can see the strain in it. And yet she is kind of convincing as someone who like has the potential to be happy, it seems like. So you could see why they might think, can't you just take that extra strap and actually be happy? Yeah, right. And you you said it, but I don't know if it was clear, but by the end of the wedding, which you, you pointed out drags on forever, so much so that as I was watching it, I was like, is this, is this supposed to be yeah. in real time? Right. You know, it, it really feels like it's gone on forever. The um, Kirsten Dunst's character, Justine, is being a, a insufferable bride. She's clearly not taking into account anybody's feelings. She shows, you know, she's two hours late, two hours late, doesn't apologize to anybody. That's she kind just, of not her fault, though, I don't think. Well, not apologizing is her fault. You know, it's the sort of thing that if you walked in and you had been, if you had had your guests waiting for two hours, you would be, you would explain it. You know, she's not even trying. Yeah. Like, and then she'll just disappear from from the ceremony. Like when it was time to cut the cake, she's just completely disappeared. Uh, she, she fucks Tim. <laughs> we got <laughs> Yeah, I want to get to that because yeah, I think that might be the single luckiest thing that has ever happened to a human being in human history. Uh, uh, but let, let, let's go through it a little bit. Um, yeah. I think I might read her behavior differently a little bit than you do. Um, I do feel like you're you're a little tainted by your love for Kirsten Dunst because I think she was very much de- being depicted as somebody who is completely inconsiderate of everybody else around her. But of course cuz she's depressed, but but nonetheless. Well, yeah, okay. Well, let's 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 go through it a little bit and then we'll see where I agree. Obviously, she's inconsiderate at times. Like she leaves everybody waiting to cut the cake while she has a bath. Um <laughs> yes, we'll just wander off in the golf cart for no reason. It seems like right in the middle of dinner. It's clear though that she didn't really want this wedding. It's a very strange dynamic between the two of them. Like, it's almost like they've just met. Um, And we get no background, none. We All we know is that he's, his friend is also her boss. But that's pretty (laughs) much all we know about how they got together, how long they've been together, anything like that. But the way they're interacting is like they're getting to know each other. Right. It's like he is so eager. He's trying, trying to get her to be in love with him in a way that seems like they haven't ever really even had sex with each other. Yeah, so they come in after there's this weird scene where they're in this like just impossibly long limo, like the stretch limo going up this, to the, the limo driver is um, worried that they're going to like wreck the car and they each take times. And she seems like at this point, she's laughing. She thinks like there it seems she seems inconsiderate, like kind of a rich 
like yeah. in a, like just a rich I don't care about other like poor people kind of way. So then, like you said, they wander in. Maybe she says like, "Sorry, you know." Her sister is very angry because her husband Kiefer Sutherland has spent a lot of money to put up this uh, uh, reception and right. Cle- and, and clearly they're filthy rich. I mean, it's a gorgeous yeah. uh, location. Where is that, do you think? I don't, I was going to ask you. I'm looking it up right now. Um, Sweden. Sweden, yeah. Yeah. Now, I wonder where it's supposed to be. Is it supposed to be in England at like like a lake district or? Um... It's unclear. I assumed that that it was supposed to be in the United States in some way. So they go in, there's this bean bottle. It's all these like beans that are in a bottle that guests are supposed to guess how many and there's like a prize. This turns out to be like Chekhov's beans in a <laughs> bottle. It will come back later in the movie. Um, but Kirsten Dunst just walks right by it and the husband makes kind of a joke about how many there are. He says like six million and five. <laughs> then there's like the dinner and people making toasts. Uh, her mother, Justine's mother, played by Charlotte Rampling, one of the worst possible toasts you could make at a wedding. What a load of crap. For those who don't know who I am, I'm Claire and Justin's mother. Yes. I wasn't at the church. I don't believe in marriage. Claire, who I've always taken for a sensible girl, you arranged a spectacular party. Till death do us part and... Forever and ever, Justin and Michael. I just have one thing to say. Enjoy it while it lasts. I myself hate marriages. Can be, please. Especially when they involve some of my closest family members. What is you looking for the coming? Terrible. Why did they even <laughs> let her say anything? Yeah. Well, she didn't even, they didn't ask her. Like, uh, it was during the father's speech. Yeah. Played by John being, Hurt. Yeah. Yeah. John Hurt character, just with the two Bettys that he loves. <laughs> and then as this is going on, it's a little awkward, but, you know, weddings are awkward and there are always these uncomfortable moments uh, during yeah. speeches. There, there's a moment where he captures so well that cringiness that comes from from uh some weddings where you're like no one cares about you like this is you put it's just so fundamentally narcissistic sometimes you know so claire kind of notices that justine is losing it during this and she just like that she's slipping away and she asks her just says can you please you know you promised hold it together and it's this is one of those very unhelpful things uh, (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) you know just can you just try harder Uh, (laughs) and meanwhile justine's like going out to the golf course and pissing on like the like in her wedding dress doing the little crouch yeah, doing the little crouch. Yeah, the husband. It's the the husband is kind of interesting because he's just such a nothing. And I like I think this movie is from her perspective, yeah, in, in a lot of ways. And so we're not getting realistic portrayals necessarily of how <laughs> right. these people are. But at the same time, there's so many elements that you that feel real and that you can relate to. Yeah, that's a good juxtaposition. This is completely none of this could ever happen the way that it happens. But nonetheless, there's this there's this feeling that this is a real thing. Yeah, he is. Um, Michael, the husband, is so forgettable that when I was watching it, Nikki asked a couple times, "Wait, is that the same guy?" 
<laughs> because yeah. he disappears into this. Yeah, he doesn't. You don't get the sense that he has a rich mental life. Um, this, he's played by Alexander Skarsgård, who often plays like the really like unapproachably hot like Scandinavian guy. But in That's, this, he's like a buck teeth, just <laughs> kind of. He's not exactly a loser, but he's just nothing. Like there's he's vacant kind yeah. of. Yeah, and he's Stellan Skarsgård's son, which I did not know until I watched this film. Yeah. Um, the the boss, uh, Justine's boss, who is, I, I feel like he is such a good, dislikable guy. He's a villain movies. in this movie. Yeah. He's like the one true villain <laughs> in the movie. Such a douche. <laughs> yeah. uh, the dad, you know, like he's, he's getting drunk and like insult, not insulting the staff, but just playing games with the staff and uh, trying to hook up with these two Bettys. Um, but also like clearly loves his daughter, you know, yeah. and she clearly kind of needs him to step up for her and, and he doesn't. Yeah. We, when you were saying about how long it is, there's this scene where she's putting the nephew to bed and then she kind of falls asleep, uh, on the bed and she's, and, and Claire's like, you got to come down. What are you doing? And she says, I'm so tired. I'm so tired. Claire says, but you're not even halfway through yet. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh my God. And then here's where she says, it's like I'm drudging through this gray moldy yarn. It's really heavy to drag along. I know you hate to hear it. And it, and that's what's so sad. It's like, she, this movie does such a good job of conveying that. Like, I feel like I know what that, or, or I, not that I know, but I, I can relate more to what that might feel like, that heaviness the, the yarn that just uh, it's a great it's a great image yeah. it really is uh she says woolly yarn by the way um, um i double checked but yarn. yeah yes but i which only, i guess is a from the opening that image it is what from we the saw. opening yeah. image yeah, yeah yeah um yeah it's a great visual to try to to i think explain what such severe depression would be you, you can barely move you know like the physicality of trying to move when that Nobody can see all that stuff holding you back, but it's still holding you back. And they still haven't cut the cake yet. Yeah. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> and then, like, this is why. So, like, it's after the, the cake scene that when she comes down. And you're right. She's not apologizing, but she is toughing it out to the best of her ability, I feel like, at this point. Even as she's becoming more and more removed from the, anything that's going on. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that what's happening is she's getting worse at going through the motions, which, yes, because as we'll see, she's going to get to a new, <laughs> a very low low that she's not yet at. But she's she's definitely worse at doing the smiling. <laughs> and meanwhile, this boss has tasked his nephew, who he keeps just insulting, to get a tagline out of her. Do we ever know what, like, what's the tagline for? <laughs> no, uh... I'm trying to remember what the she just refers to it. So she works in advertising, and he really tack in a really tacky fashion in his speech. He announces that he's promoting her, like yeah. in the wedding speech. And so, so she's the art director at an advertising agency, and he tasks her with a with coming up with a tagline. And I think the only thing she says is that it's a an expensive, inferior product that they're trying to sell to young people. A substandard product. That's that, right. Yeah. yeah. So now she has this like slithering creepy nephew following her then the husband gives her this picture of a plot of land that he bought like yeah. to make her happy 
Yeah. How did you read? Like my initial reaction, I don't know if it's the right one because we don't know the backstory. Like you, yeah. like you say, it's very weird to even imagine that there's a backstory there. But, you know, he, he shows her this picture and he's like, keep the picture with you always so that you can look at it and always be happy. <laughs> and and I read he, it as like, did she even ask her like what she was? <laughs> and did he really think that was going to work? I, it's, it's so sad because he's trying, I guess, hard but very overtly. Um, And the first thing that happens is she walks, uh, you know, she walks up and leaves the picture there after promising him that she'll always keep it with her. Yeah. (laughs) And putting his hand in the holiest of holies. In the 19th hole. (laughs) In the 19th (laughs) hole. Yeah. yeah, And then she just walks out. Is this, I don't know if I'm getting the sequence right, but she comes in to see the nephew and Kiefer Sutherland's character is there he's kind of throwing it in her face how much he paid for the wedding. And she kind of thanks him and he says, you better be goddamn happy. And and she says, yes, I should be. And he says, we have a deal um, that you be happy. Yeah, it's just a kind of an ugly scene, but it se- at first it seems like it's going to be uglier. Like you almost think that the deal is that yeah. he gets to have sex with her, but yeah. he's not saying that. But what he's saying is in some ways you know, almost as bad. You're going to have to do something that I know you can't do. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very weird dynamic. Yeah. It's a kind of bargaining that's going on with all these people around her bargaining to try to get her to as, as if your word or whatever incentives an apple orchard or, or a wedding is going to be the thing. And it feels like that must be a sort of desperation that you reach that can't be the first response that people have to you being depressed. It must be, and as Kiefer Sutherland's character sort of betrays, it must be something that has been going on for a while that that, uh, that they're at their wits' ends about. But they're also just not good with people, and so they don't know how to... Yeah, and if you think about it as also, like, we're we're looking at them through her eyes, you know, like, that's the lens that we're seeing all of it, you know. It could be that from like her subjective perspective, that's how they're being, but maybe right. they're not being as overtly awful and also just stupid about the whole thing as right. they are. You know, there is this, I've, I'm sure I've mentioned this multiple times, but there's a study that always stuck with me <clears throat> that was asking, it was looking at relatives of schizophrenic uh, patients and um, getting their moral judgments for their behavior. And one of the findings was that the family members seem good at discounting blame for the what they call the positive symptoms, like hallucinations and delusions. Mm-hmm. They were very bad at discounting blame for the negative symptoms, which is depression and flat affect. It's as if we're just we we have this natural reaction that I can fix that. Like if you're sad, yeah, then like let me help, right? Because if you're seeing shit, well, then what the fuck am I going to do? But like, you're sad. Come on. Like, yeah, I've been sad. It's yeah, like, cause exactly. you know, that's how it is. It's like that. I know I've been sad. I've even felt heavy. You yeah. know, don't you have days where you just feel heavy and just you're in a total funk, but I got out of it. Right. So I think that's the, that's the big disconnect. Yeah. But yeah, I've and- never seen like, like I've never hallucinated it. Like I've never had these other elements of psychosis, but we've all had elements, right. aspects yeah. of the depression. And that, you know, that gets to the, the Freud article a little bit, um, which is <clears throat> Freud, Freud's article, Morning in Melancholia, starts with this comparison between the two. He says, look, it seems as if the symptoms of 
both mourning after you lose somebody who you love and of depression, seems like they're kind of the same. But like one of them, we don't call pathology and we get over it. We just expect that people are going to go through that. What's going on with this other one? Why does it look so much like the kind of sadness that you would be in when you really lost somebody that you love? And that's, you know, what we're, what you're, I think you're saying we're doing. We're trying, we're like, yeah, I know, I know it's what sadness is and I know what got me out of it. And I've certainly been, I don't, I've never, I don't think had major depression, but I've in retrospect, I'm like, yeah, I was probably depressed after like I split up from my marriage and and I wasn't doing well. And you do feel heavier, um, so much so that I kind of could that image of the gray wooly thing holding her back. Like, I I have some measure of having felt that getting up in the morning on some time sometimes in my life, but nothing yeah. nothing as bad. It seems incredible that you wouldn't be able to just walk like why can't she just walk taylor <laughs> right it's her wedding why can't she just drag her ass downstairs and get through the night and if there's something you know like to, significant to deal with do it in the next day yeah you know? and that's what's so sad is that that's the expectation and she she can't like she just yeah. really can't and i do think she's she's trying yeah she's she's broken in a deep way another another part that of the what I feel is going on is a, the dynamic of the kinds of families that don't deal head on with anything like mental illness. You know, this these yeah. seem like the kinds of of upper class European rich folks that would would find it unseemly for the bride to be depressed. It's a funny thing in terms of like what's the country that they're in. Even. Yeah, <laughs> what, like it's just it's just a bourgeois like you know one percent kind of uh, yeah. more than one percent kind of life but it could be anywhere and even the accents the fact that claire and justine claire has a british accent and justine has an american accent <laughs> yeah. not totally clear why that would be but not uh, at all and then you get the, the scars guard father who has what is he swedish um, right. <laughs> the, the, the nephew is uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just a normal. So, so there, there's this great scene where they all go outside to put up balloons. And I think, is this where she notices that some of the constellations aren't looking like they should be looking? Yeah, maybe. This is another big, big, weird thing about everything that's going on. Presumably, the whole conceit of the movie is that Earth is under the threat from this, like a literal planet from some other system has come hurtling towards Earth. And that there that there wouldn't be more concern. So that's what I wanted to ask you, because I was reading a couple of reviews, and in Roger Ebert's review, he thinks that everybody knows that this is happening, but I didn't. I didn't think that. I took it as people really not knowing or having been misinformed about what's going on. So the weird thing is, like, you know, even if it was 2011. Even then, you would have a ton of news coverage and. But purposefully, this is an island of complete, they're cut off from the world. It really does seem that they're cut off. They're isolated in some weird way. I I didn't read it that way, especially since the second part of the movie comes, you know, clearly takes place a couple months at least afterwards. So they're at this thing where they put out these balloons and and now these are all gorgeous, gorgeous shots. But they, they have... 
in in the way von Trier shoots it, like this just dread is just dripping from all these images, beautiful and romantic as they are. It's it's just this sense of like a sickness that's yeah. pervasive, which is really I, I felt it. Well, and imagine the challenge of a filmmaker trying to show you beautiful scenes and give you at the same time that emotional heaviness. Right? He's done this through the performance of Kirsten Dunst. He's He's made it so that we're not even feeling the beauty in what are objectively beautiful shots if they just showed them to us. Right. Yeah, exactly. He's managing to make us feel like someone would feel in the face of all this beauty. Yeah. And she talks to her mother. Her mother's just just a mean old bitch. <laughs> like so mean. <laughs> just terrible. Well, she's like, I can hardly walk. And her mom says, Well, you can wobble, wobble the hell out of here. <laughs> <laughs> it's like who hurt her i assume that this was that her mother must just be you know also, also depressed. depressed yeah 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 so then she takes a big big swig of henny uh <laughs> at the wedding it's 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 so like disjointed also how like she'll be gone and then she's suddenly back on the dance floor and there's yeah. the way it's edited it's it really is just sort of uh dreamy in the yeah. sense, all of a sudden, she's back there taking uh, swigs of Henny with the husband. And then it's this weird thing where it seems like the wedding's got to be over because they're going up to have sex now. And, <laughs> and, and as they, one does, as one does. Yeah, as one does on the wedding night. And uh, I don't know, like, I can only speak for my own wedding. But, like, that was it. Like we weren't going back out. There wasn't another meal. No, you know, like uh, French, like French onion soup, uh, like or, <laughs> it, it served yeah. served on the ground. <laughs> but which I guess I thought this was clear indication that this was kind of dreamy, subjective, and all that. But I guess is a tradition in some places. To oh, do I didn't that. know that either. <laughs> yeah, um, but in any case, it has the same effect of being like you. Like, there's no way after all that's happened that this is still going on. That that they're having another meal. But the, the sex scene, it doesn't go well. She doesn't want to. Um, he's got his pants off. She asks to zip up uh, her he's, dress. He's in his skivvies. He's in his little, little skivvies <laughs> and clearly thirsty as fuck, you know. And yeah. uh, and he starts getting, it was uncomfortable. Like it was, yeah. he's starting to get a little rapey there. Um, uh, yeah. Does he know? I think he know he knew maybe all along, but he gives this like haunting look at that point. Like, oh shit. This yeah. is over. Yeah, it's hard to know. It seems in retrospect, it seems like he has must have been through some heavy doses of self-deception, thinking that this was just meant to be somehow, or that it was the per they were the perfect couple. I can fix hear, her. Which we hear from Tim. Yeah. Um. <laughs> right. All right. So speaking of Tim, she goes out after that. In, into a beautiful night, a beautiful shot of her going out. And he and uh, this creepy nephew follows her. And then, like I alluded to earlier, the luckiest thing that has ever happened to anyone happens <laughs> to him. This loser, this, this like creep who's done nothing but eat shit his entire life. And all of a sudden, he's like fucking Kirsten Dunst on a sand trap. She's fucking him. Yeah. She's fucking him, yeah. Like, and, name uh, me a luckier thing that's happened to anyone. Well, I my like I have a I think that is one of the worst things that could ever happen to him. Um, but what's important here is her odd mounting of him. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> she rides him like a horse, mm -hmm. and so so I think that there's some some uh, some parallels there with 
poor old Abraham. Che- Chekhov's riding him <laughs> like a horse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who would use who would use the sex as the preview of the of the horse? Riding? You can't have a woman <laughs> riding a guy like a horse without then the woman riding an actual horse. <laughs> Later in the movie, that's the first rule of of screenwriting. He's no noob. Clearly, he knows his craft. <laughs> um, no, you're right. It's not a sexy scene. It's not something he seems very like bewildered and shocked. Although I, I feel like he appreciated it, you know. Well, and really, was- just if you're that guy, like your life is kind of redeemed. Maybe <laughs> it's the it's so mean of her to do that to him, you know. And yeah. she's been mean to him all night, and that is an act of, of a feel of aggression because she knows yeah. how how much he will have. Yeah. Thought that it might mean something, you know. <laughs> then uh, she has a showdown with Stellan Skarsgård. She says, uh, "You know, here's your tagline. I thought instead of the substandard product, we'll make it about you, but I still came up with nothing." And then she says, "Nothing is too much for you, Jack. I hate you and your company so deeply. I couldn't find the words to describe them. You're a despicable, power-hungry little man, Jack." And it's cold. <laughs> yeah, man. it's cold. pretty cold. But he is all those things. He's At least we think he is. That's how yeah. he's presented to us. This is kind of the end of any semblance of, you know, propriety at this point. Like, <laughs> this is when people start to leave, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like eight hours later in this w- weird wedding. Um, yeah. Everybody, everybody just leaves. And w- again, weirdly, not with the, the sort of drama that you might expect at a Hispanic mm. or a Jewish wedding. <laughs> where there might be more yelling at people uh they just they casually get in their cars and uh leave but then also michael is leaving as you said and they have this exchange where he says things could have been different he says yeah. things could have been different and she says yes things could have been different but michael what did you expect yeah yeah you yeah Like, what do you make of that? Like, the things could have been different. I mean, I read it straightforwardly as him really thinking that if she had merely chosen to not be depressed this night or these past few weeks or in their, you know, in their courtship, it really could have worked out. We would have been the perfect couple. Don't you see that? And for her, the counterfactual is, yeah, I guess if you're fucking saying, like, I guess this world could exist with me not depressed in it, I suppose. I could have been a different person. Yeah. But, um, but but you knew that. Like, you, he's been obviously ignoring all of the, to the point where he's trying to have sex with her. He's ignoring all of the things that she's giving out. Yeah. Um, She couldn't be giving out more obviously. She was in a bath for like an hour, um, during her, the wedding reception. And, um, so when they go back in, it turns out that there are 678 beads. Um, and uh, the wedding planner, who's actually a very funny comic character, in the, he's so pissed at Kirsten Dunst yeah. and he, that he won't even look at her. And those <laughs> are hilarious. very funny. Yeah. And then the father leaves. She, he said he would stay, but he, um, and Kirsten Dunst said she really needed to talk to him. And I'm like, yeah. how do you not stay if, you, if you're lucky enough to have Kirsten Dunst as a daughter? I mean, he does a good job. Leave of- the Bettys. <laughs> He's, he does a good job of of um, portraying that sort of. He is charming, John. Maybe that's what what makes me yeah. like the character. He's a very charming drunk. 
Uh, yeah. But he's like, you know. He can't get himself to do the right thing in the no. same way that she can't get herself to, like, do anything, really. Yeah. He yeah. can't get himself to do the right thing. But he will, He wants to if he could, like yeah. her. And then there's this haunting shot of her just sitting on all these piled-up chairs mm-hmm. after the she reads the note that her father left. Um, yeah. And then Claire just, she admits that Justine tried, you know, yeah. and they go horse riding. Um, they go riding their horses um, through the clouds, and it's another really gorgeous scene. And here is also where she notes that there's a star missing from Scorpio. Yeah, and yeah, we we know two things. One, she has a very uh, she has her favorite horse in the stable named Abraham that she really loves. We're supposed to think that she really loves. But the other thing I didn't mention in my being cruel to Kirsten Dunst was that the one exception to her being so mean to everybody is to Leo. She really seems to love her nephew yeah. and she's really good with him. Um, yeah. At least as good as she can be to anybody. Who, and he's also kind of a nothing. Yeah. You know, like uh, it's not, it's not clear what Leo brings to the table as a, as a kid. This film really is two characters, you know, as, <laughs> as the subtitles might, <laughs> might lead us to believe. Um, yeah. All right. Well, part two, one of the things I thought was really interesting, first of all, like just the portrayal of just a real nadir of depression yeah. where you're just not a functional human being is, I think, you know, very effective um, and hard to watch. Really hard to watch. And it's not the kind of depression that people portray that much, you know? Yeah. But, but this, it happens. And, you know, these are the severe cases of depression where you have electroconvulsive therapy is like a, the, the resort that you get to um, where it's, you know, it's a, it's a form of psychosis at that level. Like it's just severe. It's She's sleeping, it seems like, like 24 hours a day. Yeah. And they have to drag her to the bath. And that, that, that scene of her just not even being able to get into the bath, it's, it's hard. And yeah. I th- you're right. I've never seen a movie deal with depression like this movie deals with depression. I've seen a lot of movies with characters who suffer from it. So what's interesting about this part is that as it goes on, she gains strength and and composure and actually becomes it's almost like as the 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 threat of the planet melancholia you know becomes the central part of the plot she seems pretty calm about the whole thing yeah and i mean and it makes sense given that that she's probably suicidal she's probably been suicidal for a while at that point and uh she expresses her disdain for existence and this world. So as it's ramping up, uh, as the threat is ramping up, it must be sweet relief. The thought of sweet relief for her. Yeah. She says, if you think I'm afraid of a planet, like you're too stupid. She says to Claire. But I also think it like, it brings everyone down to her level, kind of. Like she's already feeling this, like you said. She's already feeling this just dread, this existential dread at the deepest level. And there must be something almost comforting about the fact that now everybody has to experience. Right. Now you all get to see the meaninglessness of existence. The meaninglessness and, yeah, the hopelessness of existence. I I remember talking to somebody about COVID and and how they were going through it. And they said, and it was really sad. And I I don't think the person is actually that depressed. But 
um, she said, like, I don't mind it. Before, everybody was going out and going <laughs> to bars and listening to music, and I wasn't. And now I'm still not doing it, but neither is anybody else, you know? Right. And that's sort of how, like, the, what's happening here, you know? Yeah, is, it's like it, the, it's the Vonnegut story where everybody gets weights put on them. to <laughs> <laughs> Right. <laughs> Um, and not it's it, that's oversimplifying it, but it really is kind of you know as Claire gets more and more worked up, it's because she has stuff to lose. Yeah. You know she she l- thinks life is worth living, and there's a kind of freedom for uh, Justine that she doesn't. Yeah, and she really hasn't for a while. It seems like. Yeah, and I really do think that even though this movie and and you know Von Trier has this trilogy of movies about depression that the the anxiety that we see in Claire I think is also a good depiction of somebody who is even in the wedding seeing her sister dealing with people in the way that she is she's racked with anxiety about everything um she's yeah she, she is so much so that that Kiefer Sutherland the husband is clearly handling her you know mm-hmm. he's clearly gaslighting her keeping her away from seeing anything that might ramp her anxiety up. Um, and then he takes the fucking the coward ass. <laughs> That's the most cowardly thing I've ever seen. Like, yeah. like portrayed on film. Yeah. So, so here's a question. Like what's the, like it's, it's, it doesn't seem like our technological world in s- some ways. Like they're using some fucked up search engine. <laughs> yeah, well, they want to Google. Yeah. It's weird because, the, it's an old-timey kind of guy that Kiefer Sutherland is playing, where yeah. he's in a three-piece suit making notations of the planetary movements. So you get this sense that that it is out of time. She obviously has access to the internet because it's not supposed to be out of time. But even then, when she types in, in what must be a very deliberate choice, she types in keywords, melancholia, death, and she only gets like one hit explaining the trajectory of the of the planet. Um is this like supposed to be, is it just as simple as this is the 90s or something like that? Or No, I think that he's pulling us out of time. I think it's just that sense of isolation. And, yeah. and you know, even there's something almost, this a direct appeal to like the late 1800s kind of gentlemanly, yeah. uh, che- let me check my pocket. You know, she yeah. even The she amateur even scientist. Like yeah. the even the way that the little kid fashions that, that makeshift device to track the, the, uh, uh, path of the of the planet, how close it's getting, it's almost steampunky. It, you know, it's 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 pulling us out, and I think it's just giving the isolation. It's making it even clearer. They're yeah, right. Disconnected and, from the technology that obviously exists in the world. Although clearly, people can leave because people come back. Right. You know, with supplies and stuff like that. Uh, Abraham can't leave. It seems like um, certainly Claire and Justine in the second part don't seem to be able to to yeah. leave the property. So right. there's there's a bunch of just scenes. We don't have to go through them, but the scene with the horse. If you want me to not like Kirsten Dunst, like this is one where Abraham, yeah, who's already painful. shown in the beginning that he doesn't want to go across the bridge that would leave the property. Yeah. Um, she tries to get him to go and he won't. And she just keeps whipping him. 
Um, I know. It made me want to like look up to make sure that the horse hadn't been injured. You know? Especially <laughs> yeah. since she declares that she, you know, that this is her horse and that yeah. they have a special bond. And then she's, she's her mistress. She's a mistress. Yeah. Yeah. She's, yeah, there you go. That imagery. Um, she's just violating that, that bond that they have, if that's true. Um, okay. So here's where I, where, <laughs> Uh, the, the illusion I was making to poor Tim getting ridden like a horse, and, yeah. and it's a sadistic act. In the article, uh, Morning in Melancholia, um, Freud is trying to, in his terms, explain what might be going on with depression, melancholia. And he's talking about how uh, there is... In all relationships, there's a fundamental ambivalence that we have with other people, even people who we are really, really connected to. When they die, part of what makes us sad is that we think that somehow, this is all unconscious, this is not obviously uh, something, we think that somehow our thoughts might have had something to do with why they died, that our our uh, our negativity, our, our hatred of the, the people and in in that ambivalence might have caused their death. And he tries to say that depression is essentially the object in normal relationships being the other person has turned inward and now the object is the self. And so the unconscious bond that you're making with your own self is also racked with ambivalence. And so you both you both want to devour yourself and you want you want to be with yourself. So he likens it to a form of narcissism, but you also hate yourself. Right. And he thinks that the depression is that hatred part really feeding on itself, that deep, deep hatred of your own self. And he speaks of the sadism of uh, that comes from uh, this wanting to harm your own self, sadism, because normally it would be directed to somebody else. But right. interestingly... The, the person who gave uh, Freud notes about that very dynamic was a psychiatrist named Abraham. Uh. And he credits him in a footnote. So, mm. so I really think that there is, there is a very Freudian thing going on in Tr von Trier's analysis of, of depression. That's interesting. So how would that translate into the well, film besides I, Abraham? Yeah, I think that she that he is showing the sadism that might be present in a in a very depressed person. Um and yeah. And the energy that she has to harm other people is more than the energy she has for anything else. That's true. Yeah. You know? She like a light goes into her eyes. She becomes alive when she yeah. feels that kind of cruelty that little cruelty streak, like when she's telling off her boss or yeah. when she's um, and, and telling Claire, she, like, fuck you, I'm not drinking wine and listening to Beethoven as the exactly. planet hits. Like, she just looks all of a sudden like like she's been infused with life. Exactly. And the energy with which she's beating poor Abraham is, is yeah. sad, but it's the most right. physically active that we, that we see her, except for when she's riding Tim, which I think, again, was a sadistic act because she knows how pitiful he is. She knows yeah. that this is, is uh, you know, his desire aside is a mean thing to do. <laughs> May we all experience <laughs> such such sadism. <laughs> and I think on, on maybe one Freudian reading, what's going on is that all of that hatred is directed at the self so much during depression that what you're getting is a respite. Yourself is, you're getting a respite from your own hate when you right. direct it outward, outwardly. Yeah.
And it's one like this was an interesting line from the from the um, piece. If one listens patiently to a melancholic's many and various self-accusations, one cannot in the end avoid the impression that the, often the most violent of them are hardly at all applicable to the patient himself, but with insignificant modifications, they do fit someone else, someone whom the patient loves or has loved or should love. Every yeah. time one examines the facts, this conjecture is confirmed. Now, I took this as more thinking she's directing her hatred of others at at herself but i think what you're saying and that makes sense is it's actually and sometimes can be the reverse where the the self-hatred like turns into the hatred of others yeah and you know and it might it could i'm sure it goes both ways but one of the things i think that freud is trying to say here is the thing about depression is that because all of this is unconscious we can't we just can't tell what's going on like who who the object of your hate is, like, where did that energy come from that you turned on yourself? Um, there is just no clear. He, he says in men, in melancholia, I'm sorry, in in mourning, it's in your preconscious. In other words, you can pull it up. You can know why what you're sad about. You can know, but the the depressed person just doesn't know themselves what they're sad about. Yeah, right. And that's the that's what's so hard about it. If if they don't even know, how are the people around them exactly. supposed to know? Yeah. By the way, in this article, just because I don't know when else we'll say it, there's a great, there's such a great quote where Freud is talking about the way that depressed people feel about themselves. He says, when in his heightened self-criticism, he, the melancholic patient, he describes himself as petty, egoistic, dishonest, lacking in independence, one whose sole aim has been to hide the weaknesses of his own nature— it may be, so far as we know, that he has come pretty near to understanding himself. We only wonder why a man has to be ill before he can be accessible to a truth of this kind. <laughs> uh, <Wow>. Yeah. <laughs> Freud has this pessimism about human nature that I really love. Yeah. It's this kind of pessimism and like almost like fatalism. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So... I want to ask you a couple of things. And There's, I have a question for you too. The dynamic as we've described is Justine is, uh, sorry, Claire is just getting more and more anxious. She goes on this like rudimentary, like proto internet and sees that, <laughs> that there is this, uh, what they call the dance of death where the earth and melancholia are going to pass each other, but then collide afterwards. She floats this to Justine. Meanwhile, Justine is just at this point growing in confidence and just eating chocolate. And she bathed herself, which was the first time that she had done that in clearly a while because Claire is surprised. And, and, and Justine tells her like, look, yeah, of course you're anxious, but... The earth is evil. We don't need to grieve for it. What? Nobody will miss it. Where would Leo grow up? All I know is life on Earth is evil. There may be life somewhere else, but there isn't. How do you know? Because I know things. Oh yes, you always imagined you did. 
or alone. I don't think you know that at all. 678. The bean lottery. Nobody guessed the amount of beans in the bottle. Oh, that's right. But I know. 678. She has a kind of clairvoyance here. And the, the other yeah. th piece of clairvoyance that comes right at the end of this scene is when the little kid says, I'm going to stay up and watch the, the planet come today, tonight. And, and the, the mother says, well, I don't know if you can stay up. You haven't been sleeping much. She says, no, I can. I can. Right, Aunt, auntie, whatever he calls her. And, steel and Kirsten, breaker. Steel breaker. And, and Kirsten Dunst just does, won't reply. And she knows he's not going to stay up, which he doesn't. Oh, yeah. I didn't even, I didn't catch that. Yeah. He's just never awake for it. It's another very weird thing. Like, yeah. that, that until he, the very end. Until the very end. Like, but he sleeps through, even when they're trying to wake him, he sleeps through the really cool thing where the planet yep. is passing them by. And, and even when it's shaking and there's a noise, like, Clearly, yeah. Just completely out. What do you make of this seeming clairvoyance or like this I know things? Um, that's interesting because obviously the, the bean thing I had thought of, uh, but not with the boy thing. This may be a loose connection, but that phrase that I just read from the Freud paper where he says what, has, what came to be known as this hypothesis of depressive realism, that depressed people actually are accurate about themselves more than other people. It seems as if what he's saying is something similar, that she, in this depression, what she's gaining is a clarity about, about life yeah. that comes from the depression. And what it, the problem is that nobody else has it, right? Yeah. All the rest of us are, are deluding ourselves. And, and so she's like diagnosed the sickness of the earth, it seems like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the bean, the, the bean thing is just a kind of a cool way to let us know she's not the one who's she's not the sick one. We're all yeah. unwell. Well, see, that's yeah. what's so interesting about this movie. And I remember maybe even reacting to this more the first time. But Kirsten Dunst is deeply depressed, but everybody around her, there's there's something wrong with everybody around her. There's something wrong yeah. with Kiefer Sutherland. There's something wrong with the, her parents, obviously. There's something wrong with her boss. Like, everyone is kind of awful, right? And if you had yeah. to live with those people, like, of, like it seems like the appropriate, the apt yeah. response is to be deeply depressed and hopeless. And similarly, Claire, with her anxiety about the planet, which the, the husband treats as, no, oh, no, you're just crazy. You've been you listening to Rogan, you know, like you can't, <laughs> listen, you can't listen to him. Uh, it turns out to be absolutely appropriate and apt. So there's this idea where these people who are anxious and depressed, they're the, they're the ones who are right. And we're the ones that are wrong, you know? Yeah. 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 It's the kind of thing that a depressed person would write. Yeah. <laughs> like you get, you get what the perspective and the whole time, you know, it wasn't really until you said this at the beginning where you're talking about it all being from her perspective, the entire narration, really, the entire narrative really does seem like all of these people are crazy. They, they're treating her like she's crazy, but no, right. like at the end, it seems like she's been redeemed. All of those people in her circle are fucked up, but they're all fucked up in the normal way. Right. You know, they're all normal kind of bad. 
Yeah. And they can't deal of all of the of all the people to be criticized, they can't deal with Kirsten Dunst not participating in the charade of a charade. Exactly. The charade. Look at you. <laughs> Uh, I don't know why that came out. (laughs) (laughs) The most pretentious thing that you've ever done. But uh, no, that's right. Exactly. They're all kind of sick and crazy in their, but in the way that is conventionally appropriate, the way that is socially acceptable. You know. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's why it, they, there is a kind of clairvoyance. There is a kind of clarity, like you said, that, that like the depression is giving her access to. And it's like, I don't know, like, of course you could say, well, Von Trier, you know, who suffers from depression himself, would love to think that, you know. Yeah. But you know, there's something about this movie that seems pretty timely in that you don't totally know at this point, like, who's, who's kind who's of... crazy and who's not. Yeah, who's crazy, who's not, who's wronging the world right or wrong like who's just kind of uh you know what the right attitude to have uh to life is you know yeah that's that's uh right that what we need is the epistemic certainty of somebody who can clairvoyantly determine how many beans were in a jar (laughs) because at least then we would know at least von trier is giving us a clue that she knew all along but the person who is the most cocksure, the Kiefer Sutherland, or at least we think he is, yeah. um, gets so mad at Claire for having bought the suicide pills. Um, and then just... And, yeah, and then he just, yeah. We, so does he take, so he, he, he takes them. It seems like also maybe gives them to the horses to calm them down because they're all worked up about the, you know, they also I, sense that the impending yeah. doom. So, I don't know. I I don't know. I because at first I was worried that he had given them to the horses and that they was killing the horses. Yeah. But but then I wasn't sure if they were just calm because he of his presence. Just because he died and his uh, yeah, or he he, presumably in, he was their their yeah. owner and his presence might have calmed them down. Yeah. And then Claire lets Abraham go to make it seem like the husband. She's trying to just pretend it didn't happen. Pretend yeah. she's in denial at that point. Yeah. And again, Kirsten Dunst is just not having it. And this is some of her like she, her Claire needs her so much at this point, and she's not giving her what she needs. She does give Leo what he needs, I guess. Uh, But how the tables have turned where she, mm -hmm. all she wants is, is, uh, well, she needs uh, (laughs) her help, Justine's help. Yeah. I was going to say, there is something deeply distressing to me about this portrayal, not in a bad way, in in just the way that, you know, art is supposed to make us feel, Um, in that, she is the hero in the end because she is the only one who can face up to the reality of what's happening. She ends up being right. She ends up being brave. Everybody else falls apart. Mr. Cocksure commits suicide or dies by suicide. Uh, what she, uh, Claire can't fucking handle it, which I would be just like Claire. And she has the presence of mind to build the little thing. And the little boy, she tells him, close your eyes. And he's calm as it happens. And it does seem a little to, or twisted in the direction of it's it's the depressed ones who are the right ones, and I mean we've said this, but but there's something distressing about the imagery of the very end. She's the chill one. She's the only one who is. Yeah, she. It's it might be celebrating a kind of nihilism, not even a nihil a nihilism that also hurts other people, yeah, including people that you love. You know, that's what I'm trying to get out there. Yes, yeah. that's what I'm trying to get out there. And 
which is fine. Again, it's fine because this is his take on depression. Um, but I can see how it would be a take on depression that a depressed person might want to put out. <laughs> there. Yeah. I don't, I, I didn't take it as self aggrandizing, like on his part in any way. I took mm. it as this is how, you know, one way that a depressed person, you know, might, might think of their illness. And, and maybe we can talk about this yeah. right now. Some people feel like the, the planet colliding with earth and the, the end of all life and, um, is a metaphor. It's like the depression has now entered. It, it was just in her, and now it's in the movie. Um, I'm not tempted to read it that way for whatever reason, even though I tend to like, you know, dreamlike or, you know, metaphorical readings of things. But Wait, metaphor in the sense that it's not supposed yeah, it that, still happens in the movie. It, I mean, it, saying that it's it's still it's just, but it's it's a, more unreliable a, narrator. Yeah, it's like a person, not a personification, of, but it's like an earthification of yeah. of her. It's like the opposite of a personification. <laughs> yeah. It's like all of a sudden projection. It's a projection. It's a projection. Yeah, that's the word. Um, yeah. That that the movie is now saddled with the weight that she was saddled with during the first part. I'm not tempted to read it that way. But I think, like, if you did, maybe that would address that concern a little bit. It's like the earth is now sick. It's nobody's getting, you know, glamorized here or romanticized. Yeah. It's just this is, given that this is from her perspective and given that she's projecting, this is what a depressed person would project on yeah. the world. Yeah. Um, that everybody will fall apart except her. Right. She gets it. I don't know. I mean, I guess, well, one possibility for me was just that, that it was the the sweet release that it, what yeah. is impending doom for everyone else is welcome. Yeah. Um, and so she's happy while everybody else is freaking out is just that like, that's what, what she needed and she wanted all along. You know, she is essentially self-destructive and yeah. this is the ultimate self. It combines her masochism and sadism all into one. We're yeah. all going, yeah. we're all getting off this. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I was even I even thought, well, okay, what if what if he meant this to be so unreliable a tale that this is just imagery in the head of a, somebody who is deeply, deeply in the throes of a psychotic depression and is fantasizing about the end of the world? Um, which again, and we've had this discussion before, which would be fine. Like I, you know, I don't think there's a right answer there. Like it's yeah, like, it's not like a helpful way yeah. of of understanding the movie for me though. right it's not like that it was right it's like did the top spin in inception did it right. stop spinning <laughs> no, it's not like that it's not um, like a puzzle that can be solved but no. um, but i do think it's you know like given that a lot of it is pretty subjective and from her perspective i can see why somebody might be tempted to go in that direction and just yeah. think just as the husband can't be that vacant, as vacant as he was. And the and Kiefer Sutherland, who seems like otherwise kind of a decent person, you know, like just yeah. a vain and in a way a lot of people are, but like just to be in like like in the scene from The Godfather or something, sitting in the dark room, like talking to her that way, like that he didn't really <laughs> do. Like that's filtered through her lens. Maybe you could expand yeah. that to the sky and the um, the end of right. the world. Right, it doesn't like explain world. details or anything. It's not like, oh, you know, they were never there was never actually an internet printout of, of right. right? It's not that. It is though 
satisfying emotionally for me to view this all as a very dark place that one mind went. Yeah. Right. And and whether that's a very dark place that place that the mind went who then wrote this film about the end of the world, or whether the person wrote this film depicting the very dark place that that character's mind goes yeah. to be fantasizing about the right. destruction of the world, you know? Yeah, either um, way, it's like, right. it doesn't seem like it's adding anything to say that no. it's all in the character. Right, exactly. It yeah. is a satisfying way to view what is going on inside the head of a depressed person, though, yeah. somebody who's that se severely depressed. Like, it yeah. is it is a metaphor. I mean, of course, it's a good metaphor for, for the destruction of yourself. Um, yeah, yeah, which is a Freud thing, that this is an ego... That's yeah. turning on itself, which right, and in that article he does talk about this narcissistic tendency, which I thought was interesting. Again, you know, it's not, I'm not endorsing. I say this without endorsement, but it is an interesting idea that there is some form of narcissism that is causing you to make yourself the object of your uh, of your hatred and love at the same time. I uh, I really regret not seeing this in the movie theater. Like, I think it would be, yeah, it would have been like, an incredible yeah. experience to see this in the movie theater. Do you have it, a good TV? I do, yeah. yeah. I have a good TV. I have a decent sound system with it. Yeah. But, um, and cranking it up, you might, you get a sense of it. But still, like, yeah. you know, it's it, it's not the same. I've been yeah. so enjoying going to the movies lately. Like, I've been appreciating it more since I had to stop being any, just, like, I don't know, enveloped by the movie. And also just that the movie can't pause. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's is, like focus. It, you're just half, you're just there, and that's all you're doing. And if you go to the bathroom, you can, but the movie's going on. The movie's going on. You're not you checking your, your phone. You're not like the movie's still yeah. going on. So, um, I, I think this one, as much as I loved it, and I really loved it the second time through, like audio, visually, and also yeah, the sound is just something like it would be great to experience in the movie theater. It's incredibly visually stunning. Kubrick is obviously a big influence and also Tarkovsky. There's a lot mm -hmm. of Tarkovsky. When she's sitting on the fence, Claire has to carry Leo back and, um, and, and Justine is sitting on the fence. That's just like a scene right out of Tarkovsky's mirror. It's Oh, interesting. Okay, last thing, because I think we've got to yeah. wrap up, is uh, let's, we kept putting off talking about the, the levels of cowardice of the coward Kiefer Sutherland. Yeah. Um, but his... There was, I don't know how to describe the disappointment that I had when I saw him turn and run. <laughs> he literally ran away, took took the sleeping pills, and the whole time he's Do, been telling. Did we telling see Claire, him run? Like no, maybe yeah. not. He was just like really in our, you know, like the the rabbit in Alice in Wonderland with his three piece suit running fast to get to the pills before. <laughs> you see him at the telescope. And and then you just see in his face like yep. that something's wrong and that his calculations and the scientist's <laughs> calculations were off. And then I think Claire at this point just kind of falls asleep. And when she wakes up, he's gone. Yeah. And, <laughs> and yeah, that's when... It's just she finds his body in the stables. <laughs> yeah. And there's nothing about this character that makes him seem suicidal up till that <laughs> point. So the fact that he just did that, he took her pills... Yeah. And uh, and I, I like to think as a grace note that at least he, he gave, he calmed the horses down by giving them some horse tranquilizers or something. Maybe, man. Maybe yeah. they were just calm because the fucker's finally gone. Yeah. 
But yeah, it is just an unbelievably despicable <laughs> act. After all his shit, you know, yeah. trust the science. Yeah. He's like a mo- like Fauci, you know, like tr- <laughs> if Fauci just was Stop like, bringing that into this. this is, you know, sometimes <laughs> scientists are right. Um, <clears throat> if it weren't for science, he wouldn't have known that his calculations were wrong. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> What do you think? Why did it make her so angry, Justine? Why did it make her so angry that Claire, poor Claire, right when she realizes they're all going to die, just wants to do it right and and have wine on the deck with Leo and... uh, She pretty much begs her, just just like as the world ends, can we have a glass of wine on the porch? Kirsten Dunst just looks at her with such hatred and like says, you know what I think of your plan? It's a piece of shit. So mean. I I was angered by that reaction. But I think that it is of the theme that why are you trying to hold on to something beautiful when I've told you it's yeah. all ugly, it's all bad? Yeah. But well, weirdly, you know, and ironically, they have a beautiful moment at the end. Yeah. A beautiful yeah. human moment where they connect. And I think it's because... Justine finally was able to do something. This is, relates to the narcissism point for something for somebody else. Yeah. And she couldn't do it for Claire, but she could do it for Leo, the one yeah. person that was innocent in her eyes. And yeah. because of that, it, it allowed her to actually do something that's effective and helpful. And yeah. you know, in, in, in a, that convoluted way, she gave Claire what she needed in that yeah. moment. That's right. Yeah. But you're right. It's like she was just trying to hold Claire up to like look at it. Like she'd be like slapping her if she was like, what more do you need <laughs> to see to see that this world is unredeemable and that it can't be saved and that we're all fucked at, at the deepest possible level? Don't try to make this pretty because it's not. Yeah. And yeah. I can I can see I can see why that would be your sentiment when when you're like, is this the depths of self-deception that human beings will go to, to like, you know, for the band to keep playing as the Titanic is sinking is just fucking stupid. Yeah. yeah. But it's, <laughs> you know, like that's probably, that's definitely where I'll be. I'll be. <laughs> that's, but well, that's why I liked that it's nonetheless ended with them not alone. It's still yeah. ended with them, with them, like you say, coming together maybe for Leo or, or their two pathologies meeting halfway or, you yeah. know, or pa- crossing each other's paths like the planets did. <laughs> and like yeah. they, they have this moment where, yeah. Yeah. It's an optimistic uh, ending, actually. It's the most ways. optimistic ending for the destruction of the entire planet. <laughs> yeah. <you> could pause. <laughs> and like, yeah, the kind of the most hopeful part of the whole movie is when the world ends. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's the definitely the happiest moment, I think, aside from maybe Tim getting ridden like, a, <laughs> Tim, like, an, old, Tim. like an old horse. Lucky son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, we should definitely wrap this up. <laughs> yeah. I feel but, sorry for your editing. <laughs> uh, God, that's going to, I'm going to spin into like a depression. <laughs> Just have a glass of wine and edit it on the balcony. <laughs> <laughs> he, like Jen's going to have to like drag my like prone, <laughs> just limp body over to the keyboard to. She'll be like, uh, or you'll be more, you'll be like uh, Jack, the boss. <laughs> I need that. <laughs> I need that edited. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Join us next time on Very Bad Wins.